Luke 14, 25 to 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray as uh, as we come before God's word. Uh, Now let's do that together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather in your name. And we thank you for the incredible freedom that we have uh, in this place and at this time uh, to be called your people and have, uh, yeah, the wonderful joy that it is to congregate without fear. And Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, that kind of joy wouldn't trickle over into a complacency where we take for granted what it is to know you and to serve you and to follow you. I pray now that as we turn to your word again and as we think about what it is that you've called your church to do and to be, uh, that, Lord, you would guide us. We pray that your word and your spirit would be our teacher and that we would be your learners. I pray, Lord, that I would speak your word and your thoughts faithfully this day. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On Wednesday morning, I was asked whether or not I was uh, an instructions kind of guy. Um, I don't know if you've been asked that question uh, before. It came in the context of uh, assembling a flat pack shelf unit in the, um, in the education centre under the stairs. Uh, incidentally, there's shelving under the stairs in the education centre, which is very exciting now. Uh, but uh, I think it was Alison Blakey or, or Gemma Boat, or someone anyway, asking me whether or not I was an instructions kind of guy. Uh, because I'd ripped open the box of shelves and I just proceeded to do what blokes most of the time do. Look at all the bits and kind of go, bang, whack, you know, and try and put things together. And the instructions, well, well, they were probably somewhere in the box, but I hadn't looked at them at all. Um, are you an instructions kind of person? Um, now, the truth is, some of the time I am actually a, an instructions kind of person. Uh, on this occasion, I wasn't because I'd actually assembled those uh, same shelves last year. And, uh, and I thought I kind of had a handle on what the instructions were um, because I tried to ins- assemble them last year without the instructions and then I started over again and I read them. There's this one critical little piece that, um, 
that looks like every other piece except for one thing that's about a centimetre different and that one has to go at the bottom. Of course, you only realise that when you're about two-thirds of the way of putting the thing together. Uh, and uh, Whoever it was that asked me on Wednesday morning, it was a good question, am I an instructions kind of person? Uh, it, it became really clear to me the thought later that afternoon because my son uh, got his learner's permit that day. And, um, yeah, you know what's coming, right? And uh, so we leave Warrywood Square and Sam goes, can I drive? And I'm like, you know, sure. But let's go up to the back of Wilger Street up in Eleonora and, um, and we'll start up there. So we drive up around that area where there's, you know, wide enough roads and, um, you know, it's, it's quiet enough and, and, we, and we start to drive. And, and what the question on my mind at that point really to Sam was to say, Sam, are you an instructions kind of guy? <laughs> now, just for a moment, imagine if I just went, you know what? Just figure it out, mate. Seriously. Like, how hard could it be? Right? I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to let you just kind of work out how it's going to go together and the bits and all that kind of stuff. You push the pedal, that one, that whatever, you know. And you'll, soon enough, right, you'll work it out. Oh, you'll hit something or you'll get it right or imagine what that would be like. And in fact, it was highly directive, that first, uh, that first occasion. As you sit in the car and, uh, and go through all of the things and you go through the things that are going to matter most. So when I say slow down, I don't want you to slow down in five metres. I want you to slow down as I say the word slow down. I want you to anticipate the sound coming out of my mouth and assume I'm saying the word slow down. And uh, I've got to say, he, did, he actually did tremendously well. But he was highly, highly instructed at that point in time. And I suspect that over time, it will become less and less. Um, although, if I'm anything to go by when I'm sitting in the passenger seat of anyone who's driving, I tend to give instructions still. But you know what it's like? You get going with something long enough, and all of a sudden, you don't need the instructions. You can do without them now. It's the same thing with the flat pack, isn't it? I've done this before. I can do it again. I've driven a car for such a long time. I've done it before. I can do it again. It just becomes intuitive, doesn't it? Instinctive. Well, we're turning to think about what God wants to say to his church. And, of course, the question to his church will be, are we instructions kind of people? Or have we just kind of gone, you know what, I'm just going to figure this thing out. I'm going to figure it out for myself, what it is to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. I'm just going to try and work that out for myself. Or are we people who will actually seek to understand his instructions? Or perhaps is the danger that we've been doing it for a while and it's just kind of become intuitive, hasn't it? I mean, we've always done it like this and this is what it looks like and so we'll just keep going, it'll be fine. I don't need the instructions any longer. I've kind of just kind of just absorbed what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And it's with those thoughts that... Um, I want us to come to think about uh, a whole range of things this morning when we think about this idea of uh, our, the vision of a church, which is really asking what's, what's Jesus' purpose for his people. Right here, right now, the Narrabeen Baptist Church uh, on the northern beaches in 2017. Uh, we've had these kind of thoughts rolling around in our heads for many, many years, and really, at the heart of it, it never, ever changes. Uh, although you may have noticed over the last few months, as Travis mentioned, it's got really focused around one key word, which is the idea of discipleship. 
that if you wanted to draw everything down and, and, and uh, distill it to one concept, what's the church meant to be about? It's that idea of discipleship, the standing orders from our master and commander who's saying, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And it's that idea that uh, we want to think about this morning. We've, um, we believe that one way of synthesizing God's instruction to his church, and by his church we're talking about not the gathering that happens here on Sunday, but, but all of those people that God has called out to follow Jesus, called and drawn to himself, his church. Well, his church is meant to be a, a family on mission making disciples of Jesus. It looks like a really simple statement, doesn't it? Um, and we're going to unpack it a bit as we move through this morning. Because behind that statement is actually a vision that would see all people of all nations surrendering and worshipping Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. It means in the context of us here in the northern beaches and at Narrabeen, at the central point, central family point of the northern beaches, what does it look like for the 200,000 people around us? Well, is it not that we might be concerned that the people of the northern beaches might encounter the truth and the love of Christ through those people who have already encountered the truth and the love of Christ and that all those who have come to trust in Christ might grow in their maturity to him, that we might be a family of believers on a mission making disciples of Jesus. Um, Growing out from this is kind of two clear statements that actually seek to actually do exactly what that first statement talks about. That this church would pray for and reach out to make new disciples. To pray, and we're going to talk more about this in a few weeks' time, what, it looked, what would it mean for us uh, through this year and every year to follow the instructions of the Master, to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers and to send out us into a harvest field that's ripe, to pray for and to reach out in tangible, practical ways to make new disciples, to take those people who don't yet know the joy and the life that comes through knowing Christ, that they might encounter him, his truth and his love, and that this church will nurture and encourage one another to maturity in Christ. For those that come to faith, that they might grow and be established in that that they might indeed be drawn to maturity. And just a note, as you look at those two phrases, that idea of church, you're you're not meant to read that and think about the church in some abstract sense, um, but actually that it's you, it's all of us, that this church, if it weren't for the people, ceases to exist. Other buildings might be here, but they'll eventually crumble or be knocked down or replaced. But the church, the people, um, it's not the church out there, But the encouragement this morning and every day is for you to own your connection to this. That what Jesus calls his church is a call to you and me personally. Now over the last few years, we've summarised these two ideas uh, with a couple of statements. I just want to remind you of them. Uh, We've said it like this, in that idea about reaching out to new believers. We want to present everyone. We want to present Christ to everyone. It's that idea of evangelism. And our key text when we've thought about this has been Matthew 28 and verse 19. Jesus, who's been given all authority and power, turns to his disciples and says, go, and as you go, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The clear instructions. You open the box of what is this thing of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of him. He says, I want you to be on about making disciples of all nations, reaching out to the lost. But it isn't just reaching out to the lost that they might be found and then you tick a box and move on. But then to think about what it is that people might grow to maturity, to present everyone mature in Christ. It's the idea of edification. And our key text when we've thought about this has been Colossians 1, 28, when the Apostle Paul talks about how he labours and strives. And he says, I do this uh, because I want to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And that goal of reaching out to a lost world and seeing that those who have come to know Christ might grow and that all of us are in one of those two categories. You may well be sitting here this morning as a seeker or as a sceptic thinking, I want to know more about what this Christianity thing is about. Uh, we, want to, we want to share the truth and the love of Christ with you. You may have come to an understanding of that, but you may be young in your faith. You may be old in your faith. Wherever you are, grow to become more like your Lord and Saviour. John Stott, um, who has been uh, a powerful voice uh, for Christianity over, uh, over many, many decades and died only recently. But at his last sermon that he preached at the Keswick Convention, he made this statement. He says, I want to share with you where my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage here, and it is this. God wants his people to become like Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? A massive mind, uh, decades of service, and when he comes to the last thing he wants to say, when he wants to draw all of the lines together, he says, what's it about? God wants his people, his, his ones that he has made in his own image, those that ignore him, those that reject him, those that are distracted and not even interested. He wants them to become like Christ. He wants those that have tasted the beauty of his son Jesus to become increasingly like his son Jesus Christ. And is that our heart? And is that our desire? Is that, is that our vision? That, that, that we ourselves might grow more, be growing as disciples of Jesus, becoming more like our Lord and Saviour. That we might have a heart like that that reaches out to those who don't know Christ yet, that they might come to that understanding. All of this is to really draw two thoughts together and I just want to make it really clear with a very simple equation. It's to say that both evangelism, the reaching out to the lost and edification, the growing up of the found, is about making disciples. Both of those things, make disciples. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey, baptise them and bring them into my community, it's these ideas that he has in mind. Mark Dever gives a really helpful little summary of what he thinks it is to disciple someone. And he says, discipling is helping someone follow Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good in his or her life. That's it. Deliberate spiritual good. To the person you work with, to your kids, to a neighbour, doing spiritual good, a deliberate spiritual good. To a, to a brother or a sister in Christ who you know is going through a struggle or a doubt or is seeking to learn or to grow, doing some spiritual good to a scripture class, to a retirement village, to a, doing some deliberate spiritual good, discipling intentionally to people. 
And notice the follow-on, because this is true, isn't it? We're Christians because someone did this for us. And someone did that for them. All the way back to the earliest disciples. So you trace your heritage. And it tracks all the way back to exactly the things that Jesus says to his disciples. And on and on it has flowed. And who was that for you? Who did that for you? Some deliberate spiritual good. What a joy and what a blessing that they were to you from God. And of course the call then is to say, are you engaged in that process of discipling? Because that's Jesus' instruction. You open the box as we said. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so as a church, we want to be unambiguous about this. We want to be a family on mission making disciples of Jesus. It's super, super clear. It's nothing particularly new. It's there. It sits there as the Great Commission. I started reading a book um, that Travis bought and I stole it off his desk, desk before, uh, before he got to it. Um, it's a book by Dallas Willard, who, um, who a number of years ago wrote a, a really interesting book uh, um, called the, uh, the, the Discipleship Book. What's it called? The Spiritual Disciplines. Anyway, I'll come to me in a second. It might be on the back. There it is, the spirit of the disciplines. And he goes through prayer and fasting and solitude, a whole range of things. Really helpful book. He's written a new book called The Great Omission. And he he takes up this idea that we've been given these instructions and yet has the church actually done it? In fact, we might speak loudly about the great commission, but there's a great omission that goes on. And he identifies it in two places. And I'll come to that in a second. Oh, actually, I'll read the two places where he sees that we omit. He says, we start by omitting the making of disciples and enrolling people as Christ's students. We just kind of tick a box. We don't, we don't actually think about it, invite people to actually think about what it looks like to be a follower, a learner, a disciple of Jesus. And so we just skip that. We just kind of associate together. And then we omit training that will bring disciples ever increasingly to what Jesus directed. Two omissions. And and he points out in his opening chapter that we tend to think that perhaps discipleship and the discipling of others is for a certain category of Christians. He says the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. The word Christian is found three times and was first introduced to refer precisely to disciples of Jesus in a situation where it was no longer possible to regard them as a sect of the Jews. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, for disciples of Jesus Christ. But the point is not merely verbal. What is more important is that the kind of life we see in the earliest church is that of a special... uh, What is more important is that the kind of life we see in the earliest church is that of a special type of person. All of the assurances and benefits offered to humankind in the gospel evidently presuppose such a life and do not make realistic sense apart from it. The disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and the narrow. He or she stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. Not deluxe, not special. Every believer, a disciple, and every disciple equipped and enabled and challenged to make disciples not a luxury option extra. And Dallas Willard is now wrestling with this concept of saying, well, why have we omitted what it is to follow and to hold on to these truths? 
Why have we got so distracted and diluted? And why are we so busy with other things that we aren't focused on the central calling for which we have been created? And it's to that idea that we come to Luke chapter 14. And as we think about this idea of what it looks like to be a family on mission making disciples of Jesus, it's helpful to hear Jesus' view on discipleship. It's not an easy believism. It's not just to kind of like just associate and hang out or just do this following me amongst a myriad of other things. It's an exclusive, full-on claim. And if we're on this mission to both be a disciple and a disciple, can we trust our lives to it? I mean, there's other things we could do, right, with our life. There's other ways we could live. Could we trust our life to this? And so we turn our attention to Luke 14, which was read for us a moment ago. And it's a super, super helpful text. In it, we're, um, we're on the road with Jesus. He's heading off towards Jerusalem. He's actually just left a dinner party, a dinner party in which there's been a whole lot of jockeying for positions and importance. And Jesus has addressed people's bad attitudes and called them to a way of humility. He's then told them a parable about a banquet where the invitations go out, but everyone makes excuses. They go, oh, wouldn't it be great to eat at the kingdom of God? And then they go, yeah, yes, but I've got oxen and I've got other things to do and I, I couldn't possibly come. I've just got married, so I couldn't possibly uh, opt in to this. And it's into that context that Jesus speaks then to this crowd. He turns to them and he says, if anyone wants to come after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's it going to look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus wants to say it's, it's going to cost. It's a call to commitment. It's a big call to a radical commitment. He says, give up, renounce all things. In verse 26, he says... Hate your relatives. Well, what does he mean by this? He, it's to say that to, to love that, to love him and to hate that, it's a typical way that the Bible wants to demonstrate preference and the scale between preference. That our love for our parents or our family is to be so far surpassed by our love for Jesus that in comparison it seems like a hatred. So you see, that love bond that, that we would have for our parents is, and family is so strong, but in comparison to the love of Christ and the centrality of Him, it looks like hatred. Our love and commitment for Jesus is to be so vast that even the loving bond between a child and a parent looks minuscule in comparison. Jesus is saying, is that what it looks like? I mean, you're following me, you say you want to follow me, but is that the kind of priorities that you've got? A love for me that's on that kind of scale. A commitment to Jesus above all other relationships, verse 26. Verse 27, a commitment to Jesus even though it costs all of life, even though it costs sacrifice. Jesus invites those who are coming with him to take up their cross, to carry the cross. It's a commitment to Jesus that's prepared not only to live for him, but to die for him. See, Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, 
It's not just something you're going to tack on. This is a big call. If you want to be my disciple, it's big commitment. It's all of life. And it's for the whole of your life. You notice verses 28 and 32 in Luke 14. It's a commitment that goes the distance. It says, suppose you want to build a tower. I don't know if you've ever wanted to build a tower. I've never wanted to build a tower. Well, maybe down the sand I've wanted to build a tower, but, but I've never really wanted to build a big tower. But some people build big towers. But you build things. But imagine embarking on that thing. I want to build a big tower. And you just lay the foundations. But that's it, because you just, you know, that's all you had. That's all you could afford. And, and it sits there as a vacant lot year after year after year. It does nothing. It serves no purpose. It just chews up real estate. How many years did you drive past the World, Tra- uh, the World Trade Center, the, uh, the World Square in Sydney? Just a big hole in the ground. For, was it a decade? Was it more than that? It was a bit of a laughing stock, wasn't it? Until I finally got off the ground. And there's, there's other places. There's a place up on Powderworks Road. It's just been a, just been a vacant lot with, a, with footings down for years. What happened? What's that story? It's a sadness, isn't it? There's something, there's something pitiful about that. And Jesus is saying, well, if you want to build a a tower, don't you sit down and think about the cost. If you want to think about what it's going to be like to follow me, have you thought about the cost? And and if if, if you're up for it, then go. Are you resourced for it? And and of course, the followers of Jesus are thinking, well, I'm in, I'm in. But But they're actually not drawing upon the resources that he has available to them. In the same way, he says, suppose you want to go out about against, uh, against uh, another king in, in a battle. And, and you hadn't actually counted whether or not you could actually hold up to the fight. It's like seeing the bantamweight and the heavyweight enter the ring. You just think, oh, this is going to end terribly badly. And, and if you knew that and you were the bantamweight, you're going to go and try and make peace and say, you know what, let's, let's not go ahead with this. Let's settle this outside of the ring. Let's, let's be smart enough to think about it. Let's actually invest ourselves into what it would mean to, to see this lived out for the distance. Because journeying with Jesus, being a disciple of him, will require being committed and faithful to him. A commitment that will be life-changing and distinct. It will, as verse 33 reminds us, involve us continually giving up leaving behind and saying farewell to the ways of living life that doesn't match up to following Jesus. The things that this world says to do, the, the, the follower of Christ has other instructions. Verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up, does not bid farewell, does not leave behind everything, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus turns to a crowd that are following and he says... Are you my disciples? For the distance? Have you thought about the cost or is it just for today? Have you realised what it's going to look like in terms of your love for me and your love for others? Have you realised that being a follower of me means that it's going to look distinctly different for you? Your life will resonate in a different kind of way. You'll have a different kind of flavour because the disciple of Jesus stands out in the same way that Jesus stood out in his social settings. And he calls us as his church to stand out in our society, to be distinct, to be his followers, so that we might indeed show a transformed life that isn't like everyone else, that has a hope. Verses 33 to 35 flesh that out. 
starts talking about salt and salt losing its saltiness. I've been trying to wrestle with this idea for most of the week. And, um, and what really helped was I found, I found a new kind of salt, which is really cool. It's been up here all morning. Um, it's, it's kind of a yellowy salt. Um, and it's prolific. It's everywhere, this salt. Um, in fact, you could go down to the beach um, and, and get it. I, I got it out of a... Well, I just got it out of a bag um, in my backyard, actually, this salt. And, um, but you could get it out of a sand pit. I mean, it's everywhere. And... Um, and it's terrific. I've been having it on my, uh, on my food all week. Lasagna, whatever it is, it's just terrific. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's got the same kind of texture as, as, as salt that you're used to, and it has a different colour. And, um, yeah, well, you know, the taste of it actually doesn't have any taste at all. You know, it doesn't have that salty taste, which is kind of good if you don't like salt. It's, um, it's gritty. It doesn't really dissolve as well as, um, as salt might. But you can wash it. No, you can't really even wash it down. It kind of gets caught in your teeth a little bit. But, <coughs> um, but there it is. And um, <coughs> it's, I don't think it's been purified either. So it's probably, I'm probably going to get salmonella from this. But, um, <laughs> but there it is. And you can find it anywhere. Now, I, you know, it's stupid, isn't it? Because it's not salt. It's clearly not salt. It's clearly sand, isn't it? But what if I told you, well, look, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, uh, and what I'm going to do this afternoon in order to actually turn it into salt is I'm going to get some spray paint, some white spray paint, and I'm going to spray it up, right? It won't work, will it? I mean, it's still going to be, still going to be sand. And, and, and in fact, the, the, the test of it, I could bleach it, I could try and do anything. I can't. I can't turn it into salt. Um, and, and the one clear test will be when you go to taste it. <laughs> it doesn't taste like salt at all. I mean... No wonder everything's been bland all week. I mean, <laughs> and gritty. And, uh, but this, right? You've seen this, right? It's, just, it's so distinctly different. Um, it's actually amazing what salt does. And I know there's a whole sermon in, in, in salt and biblical imagery. But you take salt and, um, and you taste it. And you know. Oh, it's so much better than that, actually. Um, you think about what it does in creating thirst, what it does in preserving. You think about what, what it does. There's something wonderful when you want salt and you get salt, and something terrible when you thought you had salt and it wasn't salt at all. And Jesus, uh, several times, calls his followers to be salt, to be the salt in this earth. And that people would actually recognize that saltiness and, and would have a transforming effect on people. But Jesus turns to his disciples and wants to talk about what happens if salt loses its saltiness. Um, what, if, what if that just tasted and looked exactly like that? And, and that's the great omission, isn't it? It's that, it's that this is kind of sitting in here, but it's not even... Which is where it's meant to be mixed up with the rest of this world, but it, but, but it actually just became like the sand. It's got no, no distinctive taste or flavour or difference at all. And Jesus calls to his church and he says, you are my disciples. And a disciple's a disciple. And soul to salt, you can tell the difference. People know the difference between this, a handful of this, 
for that. It's, it's so different, isn't it? And, and of course the challenge, and I don't know if it's hit you like it's hit me this week, is that when you inspect your life and you ask God's Spirit to do that, are you more like this? Are you more like this? Indistinguishable from the world around, not in any way different. And he calls us to be salt. Salt's good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's, it's, a, it's a call, it's a judgment call that Jesus says. Have you lost, have you got, have you, are you resonating with the flavor of who I am? Are you a disciple of me? Because it will be distinctly different. People will know. I, I then started thinking about how, how does salt lose its flavor? Um, there may well be chemistry students and experts in the room. Um, I read a little bit and um, you can't do it. Um, you take the, the chemical composition of salt, sodium chloride, and you can't separate it. It's super stable. It's one of the most stable elements on the planet. It's just fantastic to know, actually. Um, but it's, you can dissolve it in water. You can dilute it. But you can still extract it. It still remains salt. How does salt lose its saltiness? Well, maybe because it becomes so diluted. But there's another way. Um, that a salt loses its saltiness. Um, you, maybe, you, maybe the way you have salt's not in a big bowl like that. It's like in something like this or a big grinder or something like that at home. And um, when that salt sits on your table like that, it's lost its saltiness, hasn't it? I mean, hmm. yeah. The, the, the only way that the salt gets its saltiness is, is when you get it out of, the, out of the, the container that it's in. A long time ago, well, not that long ago, uh, a couple of decades ago, Becky Pippett wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. I was reminded of that this week and I was like, such a great title. Because that's what, that's what Jesus is saying as well, isn't it? That salt will lose its saltiness when it's just, when it's just extracted from the world around it. When it just keeps to itself, when it's, when it's not actually lived out in anyone else's life with any kind of impact, it touches nothing, it permeates nothing. But it's not, it's not meant to be like that. It's, you know, sorry about you. Get that in your eyes, you'll be in trouble. Um, but, you, but you get the point, don't you? you know? Out of the salt shaker. And uh, Becky Pippett realized that what, that what that meant was. It wasn't to be a life that she just kept within herself, but the following of Jesus to be his disciple was to be lived out in the lives of other disciples and others seeking and others skeptical and others not knowing. And we live in a world that increasingly tells us to stay in the salt shaker, to to say, you get in the bowl, (laughs) to pick up another image. You get in the bowl. You stay there. Stay together. Not out in the world, not in other people's lives, not even in each other's lives. Just make it really personal and individual. And you'll remember 
that our phrase has something to say about that. Um, We want to be a family on mission. A family on mission. That is, we, we, we want to be in each other's lives, relating with one another, not doing this alone and isolated, but actually lived out in each other's lives and in the lives of others. A family that's on mission. A family that's on mission, making disciples of Jesus. One of the best ways that we think we achieve that and help that and see that grow is through the way in which we relate within community groups. A number of years ago, we changed the way we wanted to talk about community groups, small groups or cell groups or however you want to discuss those things, to say that we're not a church with small groups, we're a church of community groups. Our desire and our prayer is that everyone might be part of a gathering that's small enough where you might be able to be nurtured and cared and loved, where you might be known and where you might serve and grow together, where you might indeed from that place reach out to be equipped and encouraged. We want to encourage us as a family of believers to be in family, to do that relational connectedness well. To help us think about that for a moment, I'm going to ask some friends to come up. Um, I believe the Symphondorfers, are they here? Yay. And Pam Winchettle are going to come as well. Thank you. Um, Both Dave and Jan and Pam run different community groups, and uh, I'm just going to chat with them for a second. Um, Maybe we will stand. That might make more sense. Um, Pam, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us uh, about your community group, uh, how long it's been established for and type of people who are in it? Mm-hmm. Well, we've been meeting together for oh, a number of years now, some of us. Some of us only recently. But it's made up of women who are, oh, I suppose, mature. i put that nicely. We, we vary from 50s through to 80s. Um, and we're just ordinary people, but we just love being together. And we love sharing each other's lives. We, uh, I suppose, love studying God's word and praying together. So it's very special. What's been, um, what's been some of the stories or a story where uh, you've been able to uh, be encouraged or the, where it's where the benefit of being in that group together? Uh, this last few months, I suppose... Uh, One of our ladies, who's now turned 84, became quite ill. Uh, She hasn't been in church since August, but through our group, we've given support to her. We've visited her, we've phoned her, we've taken her to morning tea, you know, to coffee, whatever, she drinks tea, but coffee. Um, And we've taken her to the doctors. Uh, She texts me and says... Um, are you available on Friday? <clears throat> if I'm not, somebody else is. So it's not just me, it's the whole group. And uh, it's just been so special. She started back to our community group three weeks ago and uh, some of you have been praying for her. Keep praying. She's quite frail now. <clears throat> but that's been really special. So those who aren't part of a group like that, uh, how would you encourage them to get involved? Oh, if you're not, you're missing out. You really are. It's really special together. I mean, we get together. We actually meet here on a Monday morning. 
Um, there's 12 of us now, and it's been really, really lovely to just sit around a table, to share together coffee, and then get into the study. And then at the end, we share each of our needs, or we praise God that he's answered prayer, and we've seen prayer answered. And it's just wonderful to get back again. You know, some of you haven't started again, but my group, they couldn't wait to get back together. So we've been meeting for three weeks. It's just wonderful to just share together. You grow. I'm, I'm not the only one who leads the study. Others do too. And through that, they're growing. They're discovering the gifts that God's given them. We give support to each other. It's just really worthwhile. If you're not in a group, try to get to one. Look, there's 12 of us now, and there's a story in how that happened too. There's plenty of room in this room. We could easily break up into a couple of groups. If you're not doing anything on a Monday morning, come along, 10.30. We'd love to see you. Very good. Um, it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That support, that encouragement, that sense of family, uh, that sense of how we pray for one another, know each other's needs, how we wrestle with issues and concerns. Um, Dave and Jen, tell us about your group. When does it meet and how did it, uh, how did it get created? We're at the other end of the spectrum. We meet a couple of times, a couple of times a week. Um, Sunday night, we've developed a group that comes to our place, which is a kind of the uni student between Dylan and, age, and Dylan and Jade's age group. Um, we meet um, every Sunday night, rain, hail or shine, and we just um, all the, the kids of that age um, just contact each other and say who's coming to the Symphondorfus for tea. We meet at church, come back to our place for tea. And we bring non, they bring non-Christian friends, whether they come to church, whether they come afterwards. We've had probably a quarter or a third of the kids being non-Christians at, at different times. Um, started when Jade was sick, um, or actually before that. Um, we couldn't get people, um, Jade couldn't go out, so we had people come. We also had a friend, Jade had a friend who was um, suicidal. And we started a group for, effectively then, and anytime, anywhere, anytime they could come over to our place. And we had something for them. Um, tell us, what does the group look like on a, on a typical Sunday night? You finish from church, and then what happens? They're pretty ugly, actually. <laughs> no, sorry, I take care, care of the ugly. They're, they're quite beautiful, actually. Um, no, I mean, it, it varies. On the Sunday night, it varies. Um, uh, some nights, we've got four or five kids you know, come over. We've, we've maxed out at about 12, I think, 12, all, all of us. Um, but, uh, but we've got... Of many and varied people. If we had everyone descend on us at once, we'd probably have 24, 25, um, something like that. And then out of that, on a Tuesday night, there's uh, you know, what everyone would consider a, um, uh, a community group um, meeting for Bible study, which is kind of a subset out of, out of that Sunday night group. Um, yeah. How have you seen those ideas of discipleship happen in your group? Well, it's interesting... Um, uh, we, uh, Jen mentioned that there's, um, there's non-Christians you know, coming and so there's lots of discussion happening uh, you know, just uh, very, quite openly but not on a forced you know, basis um, just about, uh, about you know, Christian things about uh, you know, Christian, uh, Christian well, questions about Christianity um, as to why someone should become a Christian and those, a lot of those non-Christians have become really best mates with Christian people as well. So all of a sudden, you've got this group of non-Christians. They're all, all of a sudden mingling with all these really strong Christian kids. 
and that happens outside of the group as well. Yeah. So you know, it's, it really is forming community and forming Christian community. Yeah, we're, we're all family. I mean, when we get home, everyone has got their job. You know, there's, there's certain rules, and everyone's equal, Christian, non-Christian, old, young. Um, we've, we've all got our little things that we do, and it's effectively anyone can say anything at any time to anyone and feel that they can talk about it. These guys open up their home twice a week, Sunday night, Tuesday evening. A um, bunch of young adults have come, so from kind of 18 through to 20-something, um, and it's had a big impact on those 18 to 25-year-olds, but how does it impact you guys? How have you grown in your discipleship? It's a purpose. It's a way to be able to talk to um, the kids that you want to like, disciple to. The other thing is we do a lot of... Out of that also comes a, another subset, which is, okay, we're a group of Christians that meet. What can we do? What, what's next? So we do Operation Christmas Child. We do um, Christmas at Sunday at church. We, there's, you know, we do some Hope Street stuff. There's all these things, and the kids are so enthusiastic. At any point, we can say, okay, what's next? What are we doing next? It's an honour to, to disciple these kids. That's really what it comes down to. I think we get it, don't we? Like what that looks like is this stuff getting into that stuff, and it makes a difference. There's something distinctly different. Um, Jesus calls us to be his disciples, and we respond often verbally with great and wonderful statements of purpose and intent. The big question is, do we over-promise and under-deliver? Uh, we're about to sing a song where I think typically perhaps we, we, we do uh, overstate that I'll surrender all, well, all but not, not, not my time or not that part of that. Or... And the call this year and the vision for this church is that we be indeed this family of Christ that loves one another, encourages, that grows that seeks to reach out and to love and to see disciples being known. Will you count the cost? Will you understand what Jesus calls for? And would you live with that purpose and follow his instructions? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes as your word comes, it comes as a beautiful encouragement. It's uplifting and joyous. At other times, Lord, it cuts us because it, uh, it reaches into our priorities and, and our thoughts and our desires. And you call us to a life uh, of following, of what it is to be a learner of your son. Uh, Lord, you call us to come and surrender, to come and die. And I pray, Lord, that in that we today would see the joy of it, the safety and the freedom, the purpose, uh, the, the life to the full, and so, Heavenly Father, where we have been so diluted that we're not distinct at all, Lord, would you draw us back? Lord, where we've restricted ourselves and removed ourselves from any possibility of being salt in this world, Lord, would you uh, rebuke us and send us and use us? Heavenly Father, as we come now to sing, I pray that this song would indeed be the prayer of our heart. And Lord, that we wouldn't over-promise and under-deliver, but, Lord, that by your empowering, you would equip us to indeed be followers of your Son with all of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.